Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 38. While he was saying these things to them, behold, there came a synagogue official and bowed before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. Jesus rose and began to follow him, and so did his disciples. And behold, a woman who had been suffering from a hemorrhage for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she was saying to herself, If I only touch his garment, I shall get well. But Jesus, turning and seeing her, said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And at once the woman was made well. And when Jesus came into the official's house and saw the flute players and the crowd in noisy disorder, he began to say, Depart, for the girl is not dead, but is asleep. And they were laughing at him. But when the crowd had been put out, he entered and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And this news went out into all that land. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him crying out and saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had come into the house, and the blind men came up to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, Be it done to you according to your faith. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, saying, See here. Let no one know about this. But they went out and spread the news about him in all that land. And as they were going out, behold, a dumb man, demon-possessed, was brought to him. And after the demon was cast out, the dumb man spoke. And the multitudes marveled, saying, Nothing has, uh, like this was ever seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, He casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them, because they were distressed and downcast, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I'm sure as you read that passage, you noticed that Jesus' response to the, cl- to the crowds was that he had compassion on them. He saw the little street urchins, little children on the streets of Capernaum, and uh, the lost and forsaken women, the tough old sailors and hard-bitten businessmen of his day, and he loved them. He had compassion upon them. And that's the way he feels about us, regardless of how far we may have gone in our rejection of the Lord or how much we may have failed this past week. Despite our earnest desires to follow him, he he loves us. He has compassion upon us. If you do happen to uh, be one today who is discouraged, downhearted, depressed, feel defeated and lonely. And I do have good news for you because we do have a compassionate Lord, one who understands us and our needs and who loves us. 
As you read before in the passage we're going to look at today, we have four stories that illustrate the love and compassion of Jesus Christ. Since you've already read the passage over and looked at it, we won't take the time to read it again, each section. The first story in verses 18 to 26 is a story of two miracles. Miracles that Jesus does on behalf of two very different people. The first one was a synagogue official. A man who was respected and revered in his community. And one who in boldness just came straight to Jesus. Bowed before him and laid his request before him. Come heal my daughter for she has just died. The other was one who was very different. A woman who was timid and shy, who was a social outcast, really. We're told here that she had a hemorrhage and had had one for 12 years. According to the law of Moses, one who had an issue of blood would be unclean. And therefore, anything that she sat on, any bed that she slept in, any clothing that she wore, would themselves pick up that uncleanness and transfer it to others who sat in those chairs or slept in the bed or touched that clothing. And therefore, very naturally, she would be an outcast because people wouldn't want to get too close. Mark and Luke tell us that she had had uh, suffered much at the hands of many physicians. A day of, of primitive medicine when, when doctors did all sorts of horrible things to you to try to get you well. They said that she had spent all of her, her money trying to get well. She was, was defeated, almost without hope, helpless, and she came to Jesus. She didn't have the courage to go straight to him and say, Lord, would you heal me? But she just crept up behind him in the, cloud, in the crowd and reached out and touched his garment. And then only the fringe of his garment, as Matthew says. Well, Jesus had compassion on both the well-respected ruler and the outcast, discouraged, defeated woman. He healed her and he turned and said, Daughter, take courage. Your faith has made you well. And the hemorrhage stopped immediately. He had had compassion also on this ruler and followed him home. And verse 23 says that he came and he saw the flute players and the, and the crowd in noisy disorder at the house. Dying had become a big business in the first century, even it is, as it is often today. And it was incumbent upon even the poorest of, of men to hire out at least two flute players and one mourning woman who would go around and moan and, and bewail the passing of the, of the dead person. And Jesus came to the house, and all this commotion was going on, and he says to them in verse 24, Depart, for the girl's not dead. She's asleep. Now, he's not saying that they were wrong in their medical analysis of the situation. He uses the same language in Luke 11 when he talks about Lazarus. Lazarus had died, but he said to the disciples, he's asleep. They didn't get it, and he comes right out and says, no, he's died. But he speaks to these people as being asleep because their death is only temporary. He saw that he knew that he was about to raise them from the dead. The crowd's response in verse 24, they were laughing at him. Imagine being at a funeral and having somebody come and say, this person's not dead, they're just asleep. The crowd laughed at Jesus, just as the world laughs at Jesus today. They say that Christianity is just a religion for weak sissies. 
It's a, an outdated myth of the pre-scientific superstitious era. And nobody really believes it today. I don't know about you, but I'd rather have the laugh and scorn of the world and have my life tied in with the, the real Lord, the Lord of the universe, who can heal, who can raise the dead, who can raise our lives and, and give them meaning and significance. Well, Jesus raises this girl then. He does work. The, the, the crowd laughed. And yet Jesus did raise her from the dead, even as he uh, had indicated, implied by his words. And the news went out into all that land. Now, one question that comes to my mind in reading this story is, why does God allow these kinds of things to happen? It's obvious that he, can, he could prevent them. Jesus reversed both these situations by a touch or by a word. Why does God allow these kinds of things? Well, I can think of a couple of reasons. One, it's because these things, sickness and death, are part of the fall. And he allows us to experience the curse of the fall. Because we as mankind have turned from God. It began with our first parents, but we've been reaping the, the consequences ever since. But it's not as if we're innocent victims. Because we too have ratified the fall in our own rebellion against God. And yet, every time we see, every time we encounter sickness or death, we, if we're spiritually perceptive, can benefit from those things, even the curse of those, because we can be reminded afresh every time that this is always the end result of rebellion against God. It might look promising. Eat of, the, eat of this fruit and you'll have life. It might look promising, but the end result is always sickness and death, whether it's the sickness and death physically that we all experience in a general way, or whether it's the spiritual sickness, the frustration, the boredom, the tension and anxiety, and the spiritual death, the deadness and drabness that we experience in life when we turn from God, because we can't ever find fulfillment those ways. Second reason, I think, that he allows these kinds of things to happen is because God wants to use these kinds of tragedies, these kind of irritants, to force us into dependence upon him. Because it's very easy for us to kind of glide through life, tipping our hat to God, saying hello on Sunday morning, if, if everything is smooth and easy with us. But when we encounter a problem or a tragedy, then we're forced to our knees. We're forced into dependence upon him. Now, God is not a, an ogre type of king who uh, likes to see people grovel in the dirt. But God knows that the way he has made us is such that we can only really live life the way it's, it's meant to be lived. We can only experience abundance of life if we, if we live life in dependence upon him. If we walk by faith. God wants, wants us every morning to wake up and the first words on our, on our lips be, God, I need you today. And I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me to wake up and first words be, ugh, time to get up. And then just, I think, through in my mind the things I'm going to do that day. And, and unless there's something really big or pressing, then it's, it's easy sometimes just to kind of forget about God. But God wants us to have a realization of our need, of our inadequacy. 
and therefore walk in dependence upon him. And that's one of the reasons I'm convinced that he uses these kinds of things, the sickness and the death, tragic as they are, to remind us of our need for him. The second story illustrating the compassion of Jesus is found in verses 27 to 31. It's a story of the healing of two blind men. And yet as we read this story, we get an indication that the blind men may not have thought Jesus was all that compassionate to begin with. Notice in verse 27, they started following him, crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. Verse 28 says, And after he had come into the house, the blind man came to him. Then Jesus responds. In other words, apparently he just ignored them for a while. They cried out, Lord, help us, have mercy. And Jesus said nothing. He just went into a house. Now why does he do that kind of thing? If he's so compassionate, why does he sometimes not answer our prayers when we pray? Not immediately give us uh, the things that we petition him for. Well, he does it because he wants to find out, to these men, because he wants to find out what's really in their hearts. And he wants them to find out what's really in their hearts. Because God's grace is free, but it's not cheap. God wants to give his grace and his gifts to us freely, without cost, and yet he wants us to value those things very highly. He wants us Well, just as uh, there's some possessions that we own that that are nice, but I don't get all that excited about them. They may have been a a gift from a great aunt or or a Christmas present uh, that may have cost somebody uh, a pretty penny, but it's not really something that I value that highly. But there are other things that I own that I have have worked hard for and scrimped and saved and, and planned, and I value those things very highly because I know what they cost. Well, God wants us to value his grace even more highly than the things, our possessions that we've worked hard for, even though we don't have to work for his grace. And so at times he says, do you really want it? As Jesus says to the, to the blind man, when he finally responds, he doesn't say, sure, I'll do what you want. He says, do you believe I can do that? Do you really believe that I can heal your blindness? He does that because we, and uh, very often in our prayers, simply become routine and perfunctory. And those routine prayers that are uttered without a concentration of mind or without a longing of the heart really are worthless. They don't do anything for us and they don't get, get answers from God. Because God wants us to value His grace, to, to value it appropriately. He doesn't desire to demean Himself, to throw his grace around anywhere just like uh, uh, people pass out uh, since off hamburger coupons at a parade only to be cast into the gutter. Well, God doesn't want to give his grace to those who don't really want it. And therefore, at times, he waits. He asks again, do you really think I can do that? And sometimes by our response, we imply, oh, no, Lord, I didn't really think you could answer prayer. I was just kidding. I was just uh, doing a religious routine. You're supposed to pray every day, so I did a little bit. But he tests us at times and asks, do we really want it? Do we really believe that he can do what we have asked asked him to do? Jesus responds, and men say, yes, Lord, we do believe. 
And he responds in verse 29, Be it done to you according to your faith. If you have faith, yes, you can have answers. But if your Christianity is just a routine, it's just a ritual, then don't expect much. If your faith, if our faith is dormant and unexpressed, unexercised, then not too much is going to happen in our lives. But if our faith is alive, if it's real, if it's living, if we use it and exercise it in prayer and in dependence upon God, yes, then we can expect God to work. Be it done to you according to your faith, he says. Well, then that puts us in a perplexity. We say, well, how do we get faith? Do we do as Norman Vincent Peale suggests, wake up every morning and say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe in God, I believe in myself, I believe in the world? Well, no. That's just the power of positive thinking. That's not, that's not faith. That's just trying to hype up some kind of emotional feeling and fervor, as is clear by the fact of the content of that kind of faith. But we can... Uh, increase our faith as we look in the scriptures we find out what God is really like we ponder who he is his nature his personality his attributes we see that he's powerful and loving and compassionate and as we see ourselves in the scripture and we see I really am inadequate oh I can do lots of things without God I can mow the lawn I can drive my car I can uh, brush my teeth, but I can't really live life in the way it's meant to be lived. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And as I study the scriptures and I'm cast back into dependence upon him, because I see myself and I see I can't really live life with the spiritual dimension that I'm, I'm meant to live apart from him. And as I see as well that, that temptations to unbelief, are part of spiritual warfare that's going on in my life, and I resist the spiritual enemy, then I can increase my faith as I do these sorts of things. Notice that Jesus says in verse 28, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And that's the real question. Do we believe God is able? Now, sometimes we get the idea that as Christians we can simply we can manipulate God. If we pray about something with enough fervor or with enough, enough other people or with enough repetition, then no matter what it is, we can make God do it. But we can't all get together here and pray, okay, God, when the service is over, we want all of our cars to turn into Rolls Royces. They get 100 miles to a gallon. And expect that that's really going to happen. No matter how much faith we have, that's not going to take place. The issue is not... Do you believe I'm going to do this or going to do that? The issue is, do you believe I am able? And as we believe God is able, we might not know exactly how he's going to answer our prayers, but we can expect to see him work in ways that are sometimes beyond our expectations or contrary to our expectations because we know that he is powerful. He is able to do great things, to heal the sick, to raise the dead when he desires to do that. The third story of the compassion of Jesus is in verses 32 to 34. It's a story of the casting out of a demon that was brought to, uh, a man was brought to him, demon-possessed, and as a result of the demonic activity in his life, he couldn't talk. He was dumb. 
And looking at a passage like this, many people naturally are very skeptical. They think, well, you know, there are a lot of things in Scripture that I believe, but all this is a demon stuff. Surely that is the result of a, a pre-scientific superstitious age. And they didn't know better back then. They didn't know about medicine and about the psychological causes of things and all this sort of other stuff. And yet the Scripture does distinguish between diseases that are caused by organic or psychological means and diseases or, or impairments that are caused by demonic activity. And the Scriptures teach in the Old and the New Testament that, that there is a, an evil spiritual force, personality that we call uh, Satan, and he has a whole host of, of helpers with him that are called demons. And they do work in the world. Now, there are a couple of different types of uh, uh, responses, of errors, extremes that we can fall into in thinking about this. Some people have the, ex- the, the error, fall into the extreme of thinking, well, if we just ignore it, all this demon stuff will go away. It's, I don't want to talk about it, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Other people fall into the other extreme and, and they have the, the uh, philosophy, if in doubt, cast it out. No matter what it is, if you just try to cast it out, maybe it will be. And I think probably in talking about demonic activity, we should try to strike a happy medium. People are often skeptical about these things, I think partially because of Satan's goals and strategy. His goal is to keep us away from God because uh, by... Staying away from God, we are, are ipso facto worshiping and following and serving Him. And if He can uh, lead people who are in a rationalistic society into an anti-supernatural belief, doubting His existence as well as God's, well, that's all and fine. He's, he's perfectly satisfied. But in other societies that are, that are not uh, ra- so rationalistic uh, and mechanistic in their, in their outlook, He's very open. And I've read many accounts of, of a very overt demonic activity in, in many lands. We have one woman in our church here who, who uh, has told us that she used to be a Satan worshiper and could, uh, uh, in the Satan worship meetings, levitate uh, pieces and have them move across the room just by concentrating on them. And she swears that she really did these things. Satan is alive and he's well. But the encouragement that we have from this passage is as John says greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world Jesus Christ is compassionate upon this man this man himself didn't even come petitioning saying please help me but his friends brought him to Jesus and said he needs help and Jesus had compassion upon him as well and cast out this demon and the multitudes marveled said nothing like this was ever seen in Israel Apparently they'd seen demonic activity, but they uh, had never seen somebody just cast a demon out by his word. Verse 34 tells us of the response of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were saying, he, he casts out the demons by the ruler of the demons. This is a reminder to us that if you don't want to believe, God will give you a way out. There's always an excuse that you can come up with. The Pharisees couldn't say it didn't really happen because they saw it. They knew that he was able to do this kind of thing. But all they could come up with was, well, it wasn't from God. If we don't want to believe, there are plenty of excuses. If you want some excuses, 
Come up afterwards and I'll tell you some good excuses not to believe. I've heard a million of them. But, but it's true in spite of the excuses. Well, the first three stories are stories that illustrate the, the compassion of, of Jesus Christ by his actions. The fourth story illustrates and shows to us the, the heart of compassion of our Lord. And let's look at that again and reread verses 35 to 38. And Jesus was going about all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. As he was going about ministering, and verse 35 uh, summarizes the kind of ministry he had, he saw the multitudes and felt compassion. And he describes them in, in two different figures. First, he says, they were like sheep without a shepherd. The Pharisees were their spiritual leaders. They should have been shepherds. And yet, as we can see in verse 34, they were hard-hearted. They were self-seeking. They were self-righteous. They weren't trying to care for the people. And he says they were, were uh, distressed or harassed and thrown down. They were like sheep without a shepherd to protect them from, the, from wolves and wild dogs who might harass them and, and wear them out and leave them uh, prostrate on the ground, exhausted. And the second figure is, is that of a harvest. He says they are like a, a harvest that's going to spoil because there are not enough workers to bring in the harvest. And he, he uh, indicates a, a pity that the opportunity that the masses present goes untouched many times because the workers are not there. And therefore he tells his disciples, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. I think it's significant that he doesn't say, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to uh, help you bring people to me. Now, we are supposed to bring people to, to Jesus Christ spiritually, and yet it was not his intention nor God's for, for the disciples to bring everyone to him physically. A chur- churches oftentimes, I think, are sort of like a, a collection of farmhands sitting in the barn praying, Lord, bring in the harvest. Get it in here when what they need to do is go out into the harvest fields because that's God's intention as we, as we see here. God's intention is not for us to simply uh, sit around and, and let the, the uh, pastors do the work of, of evangelism. Jesus didn't say, uh, I have compassion in the crowds, therefore I am going to work harder. I'm going to get around to more cities. He realized he couldn't do it all. And therefore, he says, pray for God to raise up more workers. I can't do it all. Physically, he couldn't. It's his intention now, not that we as pastors do all the evangelism, not that you simply bring your friends to us or call them up and say, hey, I've got a friend here who's interested in the gospel. Can you go talk to him? But rather that, that all of us become workers and go out into the harvest fields and reach out and minister. Now, he says... 
because of the need, he says, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And that's the first response that we need to make, to pray. And notice the basis of that prayer. It's the compassion of Jesus Christ because he sees the multitudes. He sees them for what they are. I think for us, the first prayer that we need to have is, God, help me to see the world as you see it. Help me to see my friends, not as as, uh, uh, self-confident, fulfilled uh, individuals with with no needs, with nothing wrong in their lives. Help me to see them as you see them. As people, in spite of the facade of success that many have, deep down are hurting and are hungry and are downcast and distressed and in great need, not only for eternity, but also for this life. Help me to see the world as you see it, not potential customers or people to be used or avoided on the highways, but as people who are lost, who need a Savior, who need a shepherd. And then, as a result of that, we need to obey his command and pray. Pray for God to raise up workers. And sometimes, that's as much as we can do, is pray for God to raise up workers. I have a friend, a good friend, who's an evangelist in India. His name is Asirvadam Rampogu. And because of my connection with him and friendship with him, I... uh, I'm more aware of the, the needs of, of India than I have been in the past. And I've read recently that India has 650 million people, which is more people than all of Africa and South America combined. And in that nation, only 2% call themselves Christians. And among that, only probably only a half of 1% are really born again. The others are just occasional church attenders. And there, from what I've read, there are 500,000 towns, villages, and cities in India that have no church or no gospel witness. They have no campus crusade or young life or campus life or Bible study fellowship or anything. And from what I've been told, also half the people in India have never even heard of Jesus. And yet we cannot simply say, Lord, I'll go. Because India right now is not giving uh, any missionary visas. We might go as businessmen, but we can't go as missionaries directly. And therefore, as as I think of this, my heart really bleeds. I'm concerned for this. I have compassion upon these people in the plight. And therefore, I pray, and we need to pray, that God will raise up workers to do what we can't physically do. Or we think of the 800 million in, in red China, And we know we can't just decide that we're going to send 10 of our members of our congregation over there to evangelize. And therefore, we need to pray, Lord of the harvest, raise up workers for that harvest. But then there are many other places where we can do more than that. Notice that in chapter 10, where David will take us through his passage next week, but notice that after Jesus says, pray the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest, then he turns around and says, okay, I'm going to send you to his disciples. He gathers them, he gives them a, a power and authority and sends them out to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to all the cities. And if we have real compassion upon those who are lost all around us, I don't know how we can do anything other than say, 
not only Lord of the harvest, send out workers, but also Lord of the harvest, here I am. Send me out. I'm available. If you can use me in any way, I want you to use me. I want to be an an instrument of your compassion in my neighborhood, in my business, in my school. I want you to use me. Now, there are a few passages that we can apply so quickly as a passage like this. The Lord says, Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers in his harvest. I know of no more fitting uh, conclusion to our study this morning than to actually do what he says. 